Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome, everyone, to another journal review episode from Behind the Knife. Today, we'll be reviewing articles about two current topics in liver transplantation with our team from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. We specifically chose these two articles as they are likely to get people talking throughout multiple specialties, ranging from surgical oncology to general surgery and, of course, to transplant surgery. The implications from the first article have the ability to change the way we manage colorectal cancer with liver metastasis, which still remains one of the most common cancers seen in America today. The second article dives deeper into an evolving aspect of drug-induced liver failure and why we as physicians and as surgeons should be aware of this change to better serve our patients. I'm Megan Lombardi, a third-year general surgery resident. I'm Sasha McEwen. I'm a second-year general surgery resident. I'm Guy Oliveira. I'm one of the fourth-year general surgery residents. I'm Alex Toledo, one of the transplant surgery attendings, uh, the director of the surgical director of the kidney transplant program and uh, professor of surgery here at UNC. And I'm David Gerber, the Georgia F. Sheldon Distinguished Professor of Surgery and the chief of the Division of Transplantation. The first article we are reviewing today is the surgical outcomes after portal vein embolization and liver resection compared with liver transplant for patients with extensive colorectal cancer liver metastasis. Published by Doolin and colleagues from Norway on JAMA Surgery in March 2021. We're excited to talk about the study because it establishes a new frontier for the treatment of liver metastasis on colorectal cancer and will definitely inspire further research on this topic. Colorectal cancer is the second most common cause of cancer death and is estimated to affect almost 150,000 patients in the United States annually. Half of these patients will have metastatic liver disease at the time of diagnosis or later. However, few patients with colorectal cancer liver metastasis are candidates for liver resection. So the background for this paper is that currently portal vein embolization is the preferred method for increasing the volume of an inadequately sized future liver remnant, yielding a five-year overall survival rate of 30 to 50%. Several scoring systems have been developed um, to estimate the overall survival after a liver resection including the Fung Clinical Risk Scoring System and the Tumor Burden Score, as well as the Oslo Score. The Oslo Score was created to estimate overall survival after liver transplantation. Alternatively, there have been some promising studies in the past that have shown five-year overall survival rates of 60% with liver transplantation for non-resectable disease. Hey, Guy, can you tell us a little bit about the methods? Sure. This was a single-center study done between 2006-2019 in Oslo, Norway. There were two groups, one with 50 patients with colorectal liver metastasis who underwent liver transplantation. All those patients were considered to have non-resectable colorectal liver metastasis by a, this, by a tumor board. Any extrahepatic disease, other malignancy, or primary tumor in situ were exclusion factors. None of these patients received adjuvant chemotherapy. The second group was composed by a matched cohort of 53 patients who underwent portal vein embolization with the intent to perform further resection. Tumor burden score was calculated and a high tumor load was defined as 9 or more metastatic tumors or a maximum diameter of more than 4- 5.5 centimeters, while 
any patient that had disease below these cutoffs were considered to have low tumor load. So now that we've talked about the background and methods, Guy, can you tell us about what they found? Yeah, so patients considered resectable who received portal vein embolization and liver resection had a median overall survival of 43.9 months and a five-year overall survival of 44.6%. Unfortunately, 28% of the, spa- the patients that undergo PV could not undergo resection because of insufficient increase in volume or disease progression. In this subgroup, no one survived the five years. Patients with low tumor load had a similar five-year overall survival, both with portal vein embolization plus liver resection and liver transplantation of approximately 70%. However, in the high tumor load groups, the portal vein embolization group had a five-year overall survival of 6.7%, while the liver transplantation group had a five-year overall survival of 33.4%, with a median overall survival of 40.5 months. Also, interestingly, Patients in the high tumor load liver transplant group with primary left side colon tumors had a median overall survival five times higher than patients with a primary ascending colon tumor. So I think there's three big limitations or takeaways from this article. I think the first is like the authors disclose at the end that maybe the most important interpretation of this study isn't necessarily what they found, but the power of this study to influence and fuel future prospective studies in this area. One major limitation was that the liver transplant group was heavily pre-treated with chemotherapy by the time of transplant, with over 80% having received at least two two doses of chemotherapy, which was a distinct difference from the portal vein embolization group. The second really big limitation that we found was that the maximum number of colorectal liver metastasis lesions was 15 for the portal vein embolization group, whereas half of the liver transplant group had over 16 lesions. So the liver transplant group had a much higher starting tumor burden. In conclusion, this study suggests that liver transplantation is a treatment that might provide long overall survival among selected patients with advanced colorectal liver metastasis, especially with a left-sided primary tumor, whereas having a right-sided primary tumor is a distinct negative prognostic factor. In addition, patients with fewer than 9 liver metastatic tumors, if smaller than 5.5 centimeters in diameter, may obtain a long and comparable overall survival after liver resection following portal vein embolization. Based on these results, liver transplantation should be considered for patients that have a high tumor load despite having resectable disease. Also, patients that do not respond to portal vein embolization and do not achieve a minimal future liver remnant may be evaluated for liver transplant. Liver transplant among these patients are still a work in progress, and therefore, any patient with colorectal liver metastases that are offered liver transplantation should be included in prospective trials. So, Megan, what is the definition and utility of adequate functional volume and how do you calculate it? So, the limit of liver resection requires adequate volume of the functional remaining liver with appropriate vascular inflow, venous outflow, and biliary drainage. In general, a safe minimum threshold for a future liver remnant is about 20 to 25% in a normal liver and greater than 40% in a cirrhotic liver. Liver volume is measured using a variety of imaging techniques, including either CT or MRI, and then using 
um, one of different, one of a few different validated formulas to find out the estimated total liver volume remaining using a combination of age, the patient's sex, body surface area. Um, Dr. Gerber, how do you define functional volume and how do you determine that when you're seeing a patient in the clinic? That's a great question, and this is a really interesting study because it's a prospective study, but it is over a long period of time, over 13 years, and I think as we look at this, they've taken a very provocative topic that initially was a contraindication, meaning liver transplant for colorectal nets, because we knew those people did so poorly with immunosuppression, and they've methodically come at this, and it, it as this approaches this question of what can we do for people with what we deem unresectable, or how do we define resectability and how much, as you asked, how do you define, how do you figure out what your functional volumes would be? The basic, there are two basic camps of how we approach this. One is imaging has changed dramatically and now we can do three-dimensional volume reconstructions, which gives us a better sense for what a patient's total body volume, total liver volume is relative to their ideal body weight. Um, the, when looking at this from a clinical perspective, Volume is only one component, and a lot of centers will say you really also need to look at function and liver function, and that require, requires not volume as much as looking at hepatic synthetic function, and that's done by an endocyanine green test, which will look at functional liver component as well. And you can bring these together to get back to your question, which is how are we going to be at 20%, 25%, or 30% of functional liver volume? I will say I personally in my practice and at our center, we don't use the functional study, the endocyanine green study that I mentioned, but we do have very robust three-dimensional volume reconstructions where we can map out the entire anatomy, the liver, to say what's your total liver volume and then what would be that functional liver volume that's left behind. And that is, as you pointed out, even in a healthy liver, it's impacted by the anatomy of the patient. So where the tumors are located, what structures they're located next to will impact how much liver we're going to take. And then coming back to that question of do they have enough liver? And again, 20% in a healthy 30-year-old is different than 20% in a healthy 70-year-old. So again, looking at age and other comorbidities are really important as we determine what's an adequate functional volume. I think one of the things that we're well aware of is that with the rapid proliferation of, of NAFLT, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, that's basically undiagnosed to many patients, that the functional liver volume we're going to leave them is going to be impacted by underlying liver disease that we may not have detected at the time of their diagnosis of the colorectal cancer. So I think, again, in the ideal world, a healthy person, we can get down to 20% using the functional studies that, you know, the cap, using the func functional cal calculations of the three-dimensional reconstructions, but I will say that we probably err and say 25% is probably the minimum for most people that are, you're going to be looking at, and then we're going to get into other com other questions that really do play a fact a factor in how much liver is going to be you need to leave behind. Thank you, Dr. Gerber. With 72.4%, whereas in the setting of a high tumor load, the five-year survival was 33.4%, which are encouraging results. But Dr. Toledo, how do you think these findings can translate to our practice or situation in the United States? 
So obviously these are uh, very impressive results. I think if you take a step back and look at uh, what we're doing here in the United States, our, for all comers with, uh, for liver transplants, our anticipated survival is high 80s, so anywhere 87, 89% for one-year survival. And by the time you get to uh, five-year survival, you're looking at around 75% uh, anticipated uh, survival. So for this group of patients uh, with metastatic colorectal cancer, for them to have a survival almost at that level in the low 70s, 72%, that's uh, very impressive. And I think it definitely gets our attention um, when we look at whether, uh, you know, the United States is different than it is in Norway. In Norway, uh, the... um, the supply of livers relative to their population is much higher. We have, there's a lot of different ways to parse that. You can look at weightless mortality in terms of what you're, uh, if you have a supply issue, you can uh, look at time on the waitlist. Uh, there's a lot of different metrics you can use, but no matter what metric you use, there's a several fold uh, difference in terms of supply versus demand when you look at the United States versus uh, Norway. So with the, uh, with our extreme shortage of organs, um, you know, we'd be hard-pressed to use organs if the anticipated survival was, was significantly below um, that of, of the averages we're getting right now. But with their averages approaching uh, standard, or what we would consider to be uh, uh, standard survival numbers, um, I think that in the future, it's going to warrant consideration in the appropriately selected patients. Uh, and Dr. Gerber, I'm sure you saw this too, but I think when they selected uh, that very sort of niche population of low ter- tumor burden patients, they had they had reasonable outcomes. Yeah, no, I think that this really does it in a very provocative sense looks at how we could use livers very successfully for people when we are, have a limitation in, in what we can offer them because of the extent of their disease, in this case, their metastatic disease, and, and trying to find that balance so that we're good stewards of a, a scarce resource, meaning donated livers. This allows us to sort of interface two different modalities of therapy together to provide the greatest benefit. So, Dr. Gerber, given kind of the supply and demand issues, um, do you think we could circle back to what you were talking about earlier um, and kind of discuss the pros and cons of portal vein embolization? Sure. I think, you know, because we will have limitations in organ supply for the foreseeable future, it is important to look at how we can expand one's own liver to be able to successfully do metastectomies or extended liver resections. Portal vein embolization, which is a well-established technique and has been used for upwards of probably two to two and a half decades, is an approach where now it's done by interventional radiology, where you basically go in and embolize the portal vein to the affected side, meaning where more of the metastatic burden is, and then allowing the liver to go through the hypertrophy that Dr. Lombardi talked about before, which is typically a four-week period. So you're going to give them an interval of time. Now, when we look at patients, again, if I take somebody who's a 25-year-old and we do a portal vein embolization to the right side of their liver, they're going to have a very robust, typical hypertrophic response 
on the uninvolved side, which is going to allow us to then go back and resect. The challenge is most of the people with metastatic disease involving the liver are not 20. They're usually older. They typically, as I mentioned before, have other underlying diseases which will limit or somewhat impact their ability to have that hypertrophic response to the portal vein embolization. And then if you add in things like NASH and or if they've had chemotherapy, all these things that are hepatotoxic will have an impact on the hypertrophic remnant response, hence that we give them that four-week interval of time. Now, one approach that we can expand on portal vein embolization is another procedure that's been described and used selectively over the last decade is called ALPS, where you surgically go in and ligate the portal vein and you get a more robust hypertrophic response. It's sort of a two-stage approach to get that, but again, has its own morbidity and comorbid associated factors with it. So I think that there are pros with portal vein embolization. The cons are that you may not get the response and now you've knocked out the portal vein. Um, one of the real, you know, also uh, what I'd say avant-garde approaches to this is actually doing a combination of tear embolization where you take radioembolized beads that will deliver radiation locally within the liver, using those for the portal vein embolization. So you could get some hypertrophic response from the uninvolved side of the liver while you're getting some radiation therapy locally to the disease side of the liver that may even shrink your burden of tumor. And there is a, a really nice series that came out of North, <clears throat> excuse me, out of Northwestern that looked at that, that showed that you could then make people who are unresectable, resectable, taking this sort of combinatorial approach to things. And I think given that the Given the scarcity of organs here in the United States, um, that'll be important being able to uh, use hypertrophic uh, mechanisms to give you a larger remnant because we can't just take all this this entire cohort of patients and say, all right, straight to liver transplant. We still need to, as Dr. Gerber mentioned, be good stewards of these organs and figure out who really needs them. And if these patients have other options, um, a lot of the patients on the liver transplant list don't have those other options of, uh, of doing a partial resection and, and so forth to avoid transplant. So um, I think down the line, as you know, some people find it fascinating, some people find it maddening, but down the road with um, organ allocation and adding this into the existing complex organ allocation structure, I think um, is um, going to be a tall task, but I think this study is sort of uh, a first step at, at showing that at least there is benefit. And then the second step down the road is, is the, uh, some of the ethical issues, the utility, the fairness, um, and trying to parse all those issues and, and put them together in, in one cohesive system. This concludes the discussion of the first article. Thank you, Dr. Gerber and Toledo. Those are great points you touched. Now we're going to transition to our second article, which Sasha will be presenting. Our next article focuses on drug-induced liver injury, or DILI, and how both the etiology and the affected population have changed over the past few decades. The article is titled, Eightfold Increase in the Dietary Supplement-Related Liver Failure Leading to Transplant Waitlisting Over the Last Quarter Century in the U.S. The article is by Gabriel et al. out of Indiana University. For some background on the article, 
Over the last quarter century, approximately 12 to 15 percent of liver transplants for acute liver failure were drug-induced. This article set out to examine the changing trends and the reason for drug-induced liver failure over a 20-year period. So from 1995 to 2020, all patients waitlisted for transplant in the UNOS database were examined for drug-induced liver injury diagnosis codes. They were divided into three eight-year time periods and analyzed as individual groups. Some exclusion criteria were other diagnoses or prior transplant, and outcomes measured were transplant, death or waitlist removal for being too sick, or if they were delisted from the UNOS database for improvement. So the researchers analyzed acetaminophen and not acetaminophen DILI separately because, as expected, acetaminophen remains leading cause of drug injury. In the non-acetaminophen group, again probably as expected, antimicrobials are the most commonly implicated class across all three time periods. So the first changing trend they found was a decrease in anti-epileptic, mushroom, and propylthiouracil drug-induced acute liver failure. And the second change, and the one we'll focus on today, was a significant increase in the herbal and dietary supplement-related drug-induced acute liver failure over time, and they found this in up to one-quarter of the non-acetaminophen liver failure group in the latest group from, that was measured from 2013 to 2020. Not many of these supplements were listed by name, but as a category, they were largely aimed at weight loss and physical enhancement. Another interesting finding from this group was more gender, ethnic, and racial diversity in the waitlist for herbal and dietary supplement-associated DILI from prior. So prior to 2003, the waitlist was primarily composed of white females, However, they found an increase in males in the non-acetaminophen drug-induced liver failure group and increased racial diversity in the acetaminophen-based group. So, Dr. Toledo, is this um, shift in etiology of drug-induced acute liver failure something that you've noticed at all in your own practice? So, uh, I would say yes and no. And uh, the first part of that is more about uh, when we look at these studies, uh, something that's been highlighted, I think, in other Behind the Knife podcasts, too, is the difference between um, a percentile change and a clinically meaningful change. So uh, the title indicates an eightfold increase in, um, in these episodes. But in clinical practice, that can sometimes uh, actually not be as meaningful as it, as it initially sounds. You know, if, if one kid was eaten by an alligator in the United States this year and... Uh, next year it's eight, that's that's still kind of a, a low number and probably not indicative of any uh, major trends, but uh, you never know. The uh, So to answer that question is I would just first look at the overall numbers, and the overall numbers in these cases are still relatively low. So this is not all of a sudden the leading etiology of liver failure in the U.S. It's still the main players that, that it's always been. But um, I do think, uh, and Dr. Gerber, you can comment on this too, I have seen, we have seen a few more cases of drug-induced acute liver failure uh, presenting as acute fulminant uh, liver failure. And the uh, it's a little bit harder to characterize because the numbers aren't huge um, and the drug may be different in different instances. But when you put it all collectively, I would say there is there are a few more cases of these that, that anecdotally we probably see. And and to piggyback on what Dr. Toledo was saying, I think that, you know, in our role in surgery, we only see the worst of the worst that don't make a recovery. Obviously, we're, we work closely with our collaborative hepatologists who see a lot more of these, and many of them don't get referred in um, to the space where they're worried about transplant because they start to make a recovery. But we definitely, you know, with the expansion of this supplement business, 
we are seeing more dilly or drug-induced liver injury compared to, you know, if we went back 15, 20 years, I seem to always use that time frame, um, where we talked more about just, you know, acetaminophen or mushrooms, some of those. We are seeing more in the, the, the non-steroid and steroid supplements, the bodybuilding supplements that contributing to liver failure. Uh, that's a very different population. It's usually a younger population that we're seeing. Uh, and some of them do, you know, drug-induced liver injury is just that, you know, you get away from the inciting event. And then I think what we're always left with is if there's some underlying liver disease or precondition, some of these patients never make a recovery. And that's where transplant really does become critical and life-saving. Another thing, too, I, it, I've seen anecdotally as well as we've had, we had a case or two here of, of uh, athletes with uh, heat stroke and uh multi-system organ failure going on to uh, transplant and perhaps supplements were a hidden component in that we attribute it all to heat right. stroke but it's possible yeah. that it's a multifactorial thing with uh, with other supplement use right and I think the hard part in this space is that this is an unregulated space and I think you know very much like anything else that's an unfiltered medium, you're going on what's on the label, and not all things are the same. Manufacturing isn't regulated. You know, the supplements are not FDA regulated, so it's really they put out there what they think is on there. Um, and that does expose, again, somebody, two people taking the same supplement may have very different risks. We know that. So we all are aware that Tylenol and some antimicrobials are causing Dilly, but I guess now that we do have these FDA unapproved drugs and we were just talking about athletes who might be taking something on the side, how do we go about or how does this change prevention strategies or treatment strategies or even just alerting the general public that this is a problem and that if they are having changes or we're seeing these in the clinic, our hepatology colleagues, um, to start asking and getting patients to open up about what they're actually taking? Right. That is a great question because I think that that's now really more of a population-based problem that we're dealing with, which is about information and misinformation. Um, so making people, you know, I think everybody knows about Tylenol and they know about alcohol, but people don't know about a lot of the other sometimes antimicrobials that have a risk or other drugs that have a risk. And so there has to be more public messaging and PSA type work around the impact of both prescribed and unprescribed medications, things that we take into our body to know what those risks are. And the community, the liver community has really embraced this. So, you know, like I said before, drug-induced liver injury was really focused into two very narrow areas. And now it is a broad NIH and federally funded area to get that messaging out there. Um, I think we still have a bit of an uphill battle. So this concludes our journal review on new topics in liver transplantation. We hope we were able to shed some light on these exciting new topics as they relate to not only transplant surgery, but to also general surgery and surgical oncology. Both of these articles have a lot of real-life implications for the general public, and we think that over the next four to five years, we're going to see these topics explode, not only in the literature, but in our clinics all over the United States. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time for our case review in transplant surgery. Until next time, dominate the day.